Welcome to the Primary Source Podcast. My name is Tom Bober, a school librarian in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. This podcast is here to explore how primary sources can be used in K-12 libraries and classrooms. We'll dig into resources and teaching strategies, talk to educators who are utilizing primary sources, and supporters of educators who curate these incredible items and use them in their work. We are starting officially season four today with this episode, and you might look back and say, Tom, where was season three? And I can tell you it was short, only three episodes. And I tell you this because our episode today is one that actually I recorded for season three, and it's just coming out now for season four. About this time last year, I had a conversation with Anna Crowley Redding, and she's our guest for today's episode. And you're going to listen to this, and you're going to, I hope, and I think, love every minute of it. It was an incredible talk with Anna. I loved everything that she had to say, and honestly could have kept the conversation going. But what also happened at that same time was I kind of lost the capacity to do all of the extra things outside of work. And so the podcast and some other things that I loved doing just went to the side. I got a couple of episodes out and just lost all that momentum. And for my own kind of emotional health, I felt free to step away from that and This past spring, I put out one more episode, and really that episode was just to see if it was something that I still wanted to do, something that I still loved, and it was, and I did, and I'm so excited to share that we actually have all of the episodes for the first half of this fourth season already recorded. I'm working on editing and cutting them together right now, and I can't wait for this to be a full season because I love sharing these stories with you, mostly from nonfiction authors, but we have others that are coming in this year that I think are going to be so much fun. And so in this intro, I want to apologize to Anna, but I also want to acknowledge what a great interview it is and how happy I am that we're able to kick off season four with this conversation with her. I hope you enjoy it. And here it goes. Listeners, we are here with Anna Crowley Redding. I am so excited to actually get to have this conversation with her. Anna and I have been on probably like countless clubhouse rooms together chatting in the past. I'm not on there as much anymore, Um, but that is the first time many, many months ago where I first heard about her newest book, which is called Courage Like Kate, The True Story of a Girl Lighthouse Keeper. Anna, thank you so much for joining me today on the Primary Source Podcast. Thank you for having me. I am super, super excited to be here. I love your podcast, and I love talking about primary sources. We're going to dig deep into them today, I know, and you know how much I love to talk about it, so we'll geek out on it together. I love that. I would love, though, to start with, for any of our listeners who have not read Courage Like Kate, if you could tell us a little bit about this newest book. So Courage Like Kate is the true story 
of a 12-year-old girl who became a lighthouse keeper on behalf of her father, who was ailing. And she did this in the 1800s. And she actually, she ended up saving 23 lives. We think, I have a feeling it's a lot more, but we can document 23 of them. I love that you have true story right on the cover because it eliminates that question from students when you do that read aloud or when they're checking that book out that they know right off the bat that this is Kate's story. And I know just from hearing you talk about other books in the past, um, the amount of diligence that you do around the research for these books. But I want to back up even a little bit more than that. Where did you first find out about Kate's story? Where did this idea for this book come from? Well, you know that, and your listeners may know that I was a reporter, an investigative reporter, before I was a children's book author. And it's kind of... um, Reporting is often a way of life, and so some of that doesn't like automatically go away just because you aren't reporting to a newsroom every day. And so a couple of the habits that have stuck with me is when I wake up in the middle of the night, usually because of the kids, but I can't get back to sleep, I read headlines, and sometimes I listen to scanners. And so I would start reading headlines at like 3 in the morning, and I saw an Associated Press story that the U.S. Coast Guard was launching a new fast response cutter. So one of their fastest, most powerful ships. And they were naming it after a lighthouse hero named Kate Moore. And when I read that, I was trying to think of myself in my little fifth grade room learning this information of, wow, there was a 12-year-old girl in the 1800s. Women couldn't vote. They were expected to be sometimes seen, never heard. And here she was taking over her father's job, extraordinarily dangerous work, and saving these lives. And I I just thought, if I had known that story when I was 12, like immediately I would have imagined different possibilities for myself, especially given that it was a true story. And so that's how I first heard about Kate Moore and her heroism. When you are up in the middle of the night and you're reading through these headlines as a picture book author and you're like, I think there could be something here. This could be so cool. Did you jump off right away and start to look in the middle of the night or did you wait a day or two and circle back? I waited a day so I didn't wake up the whole house (laughs) going downstairs to the computer, but I did wait, but I immediately started digging into her story. And the thing that was interesting about that is that there was almost zero secondary source material about Kate Moore. So there were some summaries of her um, work and her efforts, but there was not a lot of detail. And there certainly wasn't an entire book devoted to her. So let's talk about, it sounds like there was a ton of primary source material then, if that's the case. And I know some of it's even lightly referenced in the book. So talk to me about, share with me some of these primary sources that you came across that um, ended up influencing this picture book? Well, one of the first things that I did was I started to look at um, historic newspaper articles to find out, did they ever cover her heroics? Because it would have stood out, you know, in the 1800s, it would have stood out. And I found two articles. So I found one from the New York Sunday World and one from the New York Sun. So obviously, if you've studied 
um, yellow journalism, you know that between the two, the New York Sun is the most reliable. So, but even still, they what they said about her in this article that she would get up in the middle of the night and walk out on these two wooden planks all the way to the lighthouse. Three, I think it, they said 300 rods, which, you know, is not a measurement we use today. So I had to first convert that to understand exactly, you know, what a big deal it was. Basically 600 feet on these planks and that water could be sloshing under her feet and that she had to hold a lantern. Now, I'm just thinking about, like, trying to put myself in her situation of, you know, no L.L. Bean boots, um, no puffy down and no flashlight. Like you have to keep this flame going so that you don't kill yourself on the way out there and you've got to stay on these planks. And so I was like it cannot be true. This has got to be a reporter exaggerating what is going on. So I really wanted to prove or disprove this article, these two articles. So that's kind of what I set about doing was the first thing I did was find a map um, of Fairweather Island um, from when she was there. And so I'm looking at this map and I see the keeper's house, which they call the keeper's dwelling. I see the barn, the boathouse, the buoy shed, and then I see the lighthouse. And then it's there is the two planks and it's labeled on the map going from the house to the tower. And it was one of those nerdy, nerdy, nerdy moments where I was like, yes, I found it. I, it's true. <laughs> I've been there before. I know what that feels like. It feels awesome. It's nothing you repeat at a party with other adults. Nobody like else cares. <laughs> yeah. No one else cares, but if you're in a room with like librarians and picture book, you know, nonfiction PB authors and stuff like that, they all love that story. I'm sure that 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 yeah. story plays well in that room, but probably nowhere else. This comes across yeah. so well in in the in the book, too, because not only is it um, written about do you write about it, but um, Emily Sutton, the illustrator, does this great job of giving us this perspective of what this looks like, too. I've got the book with me here, of course. And yeah. it's just the danger and kind of the peril that she's putting herself in um, comes across like on all fronts. It's wonderful. And, and so that was interesting. So normally, um, as you know, in writing fiction picture books, the um, illustrator and the author really are not in communication. In this case, it was important because, you know, like I said, there's not a lot of secondary source information for the illustrator either, which means that I was sending her everything I had. And so when we got to the planks, she sent a couple of sketches my way with the question, is it dangerous enough? And so it was really important to her to get that right. And I think she captured the danger perfectly. I would agree. It's it's It fits well with everything around it, and yet it still has that dangerous feel. And you know what? I'm flipping back a page now, and the page, page prior, she's in the house with her father. It's got all these wonderful warm colors. It feels cozy. It feels homey. And then you flip that page, and she does this with the color and the waves. That, you know, it kind of she's simulating this wind going on. You get all kinds of 
the movement, the color tones, all of that going on that that takes you not only to the the factual, you know, here's what these these boards, you know, here's what this path looked like, but we she brings out for me as a reader an emotion, which is is awesome. It was really um, one of my favorite spreads that, and when she's going. Um, into the lighthouse. But I, I think that to your point, she does such a great job of realizing the change in this young woman's trajectory and what that feels like on a visceral level. So I love, okay, so n- newspapers were big, but I have to imagine you ran across them and you found this map. Anything else that you were like, this piece to me was like a key piece that that kind of played well within the primary sources that I ran across. And maybe, I mean, I feel like I'm already seeing how these things are affecting the story, right? I mean, this is what uh, I think is so interesting about the primary source findings that, that authors and illustrators come across is that it really has these direct impacts on the stories that we end up reading, that all of these page turns that we end up going through in these nonfiction works. Well, there was like some basic questions. Number one, how old was she? So the in the New York Sun article, they make her, I think they said she was like 99, which like she would have died at a million years old. So, and then this other one is, had her, you know, dying more in her late 80s. And so I was trying to figure out when did she, how old was she? And and this is kind of an interesting problem for Connecticut specifically, and I imagine some other states as well, but there was some, um, I think it was during the War of 1812, if I'm not mistaken, but uh, there was some burning of government buildings, and some of these documents were lost. And so there wasn't, you know, any kind of documentation that I could find of her birth. So I was in um, the Bridgeport Public Library, basically on microfilm, going through the paper once she is of an age and reading the obituaries for for every publication in every instance until I finally found it. And it says that she's died, and then I could figure out from from the the date that she was eighty she was eighty six years old. So, like, that seems like an enormous amount of effort for that one detail, but I really wanted to understand the, the scope of her life, and it helped to understand the span of her life. Um, because if indeed she lived beyond 100, I mean, then that would be deserving of a mention in the story. But I didn't also want to continue kind of, I don't want to demean her life by making it into sort of a um, caricature. So that was super important to me. Um, So that was like one kind of basic thing about her. And then I also wanted to figure out, okay, why is it that she is having to do this for her dad? And in these articles, it had mentioned that her father was taking in a load of hay off the top of a wagon that was still harnessed to horses. And um, it was for Commodore Hull, um, the the very famous um, revolutionary patriot. And so the horses got away and he fell off of the top of, of this hay. So I wanted to look and see if I could find any 
any mention of them in the primary sources. And so I found that in the congressional records looking at lighthouses where there is a problem with the lighthouse keeper at Fairweather Island. People have been writing in to saying that he's often, you know, um, drunk on the job and um, not able to keep up with his duties. And so they're looking for a new lighthouse keeper. And then you find this recommendation come in from Commodore Hall recommending her father. So then I was like, okay, all right, we have, we have evidence. We have proof. I love all of the, like you said, all of these little pieces are make up these details that sometimes, especially on a first read, you may not pick up in Kate's story, but it all comes together to give us this impression of her um, and who she is in the world that she lived in, which is exactly, I think I get the impression that's what you're trying to do with all this research and then crafting the story that you do. Yes. And, you know, um, it was very difficult because basically you're grasping at every census record that you can find. Um, The pay stops. I wanted to understand how long for her life, and this isn't necessarily included in in the book per se, because I don't think that young readers understand um, inequality at this granular level yet. Um, They understand women not being able to vote. They understand women not being able to have a job of their choosing. But I wanted to know for me, who were those checks made out to all those years? And they were made out to her dad. And she was doing the work. And so that, for me, sometimes a detail like that isn't going into the, the words on the page, but it is definitely going into the confidence with which you approach the story. I think the thing, one of the things that I found so interesting, and I've been really paying, I think, more attention to this as I've been reading more and more and more uh, historically-based picture books, nonfiction picture books that are focused on an individual, is uh, the decisions that you made, because I know that authors go through all of this amazing amount of research, primary source, secondary source, across the board, understand this person's life in and out, and then at a point you need to make a decision around what is actually going to be the story that you tell. And to that degree too, like when in Kate's life is this story going to take place? And you really focused a lot of your attention in the story around Kate's younger life and then through that time where she actually is doing the job on the behalf of her father. Uh, the, mm-hmm. there is some, there's, it kind of wraps up at the end as she's getting her own, uh, she's then assigned to the lighthouse herself, but, but you really establish her as a character, um, and a, an individual and all of those kind of character traits early and, and midlife. And, and I was wondering if you wanted to speak a little bit towards kind of your decisions around that and, and kind of what led you in that direction. That was the hardest part, right? Was figuring out what is this book about? We know, have a substantial informa- amount of information about her life, the period she was living in, the technology she was working with. But all of that was fascinating. <laughs> and which sounds amazing as a writer, that was the hardest part. Because am I going to focus on life as a lighthouse keeper? Am I going to focus on, like, what am I going to focus on? Um, And I think 
at the end of the day, why am I even writing this story? And I went back to that, how I felt when I first heard about it is what possibilities would I have imagined for myself if I knew about Kate Moore when I was a little girl? So I decided that above all, I wanted young readers to connect with her and I wanted Kate to meet them where they are as young readers. And so that was important to me to be able to put her there at a young age and then to show what she was doing at a young age. And then in the get to why that was so unusual and the historical significance of what she did. Um, so that was kind of the decision. But I have to admit, you know, I started researching this story in 2014. There are 40 drafts of this book. And that is what the problem was. What is this book about? And once I returned to what originally grabbed me, it was, by that point, it was, you know, just clear. And plus, I had written it so many ways. I will tell you a funny story, though. Once this book was acquired um, by Penguin Random House, I um, the editor asked for a change. I don't even remember what it was. But she was like, you know, could you approach this one um, spread differently? Could you maybe include this, that, or the other? Well, I had 40 other drafts, so... I just went back through them and plucked something out. And I can't believe I'm saying this. Hopefully she's not listening. But I think she was like, that's amazing. How was she able to turn that around so Quickest quick? Quickest edit ever. I love it. Yes. But you already had it. And I mean, I think that's, I, I know this is kind of veering away from our focus, but I think this idea of editing stories and, and as I'm working with young readers, young writers, the appreciation for trying a story in a different way and trying to figure out exactly the question that you're asked, you ask yourself, what is this story actually supposed to be about? That's so tough to not only make those decisions because it's never like an instant decision or rarely is, it's often a journey to figure that out, but also to write something. And I bet there are some of those 40 drafts that you loved or there are pieces of yeah. those 40 drafts that you loved and you had to make decisions to let pieces go because they ultimately didn't work in the story that you realized that you needed to tell. Yes, they were distracting. Like she's in an extraordinary setting, extraordinary setting. But as a writer, that setting is distracting because that setting is so unique and it's so romanticized in modern times, this idea of living on an island with a lighthouse and, you know, it's very easy to make the setting the main character if you're not careful. And so that was hard. And as far as rewriting and revising, you know, one of the ways that I explain what that's like is if you are in the kitchen with flour and butter and sugar and chocolate chips, it's just those ingredients but you can choose whether to make a pancake, chocolate chip cookie, or a chocolate chip cake with mm -hmm. frosting. So it's about taking those same ingredients and creating something different, which can be enormously frustrating and intimidating, but is very satisfying because the result can be so different when I you get that. to the end of it. 
I love that. Uh, I, I have to put a plug in, and I don't know if primary sources played a role in this or not, but I loved the back matter that you had in and the references to like the other jobs that Kate did. You've got a little reference to her salary, so I'm guessing that probably was a primary source reference. Uh, but if you, if any of the readers of this book are looking and wondering about what Anna was saying about how many different directions she could have gone, just reading those few short paragraphs in the back matter, I think give easily uh, a few more directions that could have been explored in Kate's life that that ended up here in the back, which is a reason why I love back matter so much. It was that was really fun because she did she carved duck decoys out of wood during these lonely nights in the lantern room. And then she had her oyster beds. And so there was this rumor in in some of the um, old articles that someone had gone out on her oyster beds out in the Long Island Sound and that she rowed out to them and in her boat and met them with a shotgun and was like, do not get on this oyster bed again. And so I examined her lighthouse log, which is at the um, Bridgeport Public Library and their special collections. Um, I examined it, and this is where she writes down the gales, the weather, that kind of stuff. And at the very end of it is a, a little note from a lighthouse official saying that anyone who comes on her, you know, trespasses onto her oyster beds is. Um, going against the government of the United States. And so I was like, wow. She had she some pull. a tough cookie. And she would have had to have been. I mean, it was this was a dangerous time if you think about what was going on, um, you know, while she was living there. Um, there were wars going on. There were pirates, um, all kinds of, of interesting stuff happening. But the other thing that was interesting about her was that one of the articles written later on um, said that she died a millionaire. And I was very intrigued by that because I wanted to understand um, if that was true. So eventually I was able to get a hold of her last will and testament. And I did that through doing research on ancestry. I was able to get to those records and it was not true. So I was able to disprove that. There was another um, article that said that she had a very famous um, painting hanging um, in the living room of the lighthouse, an original. And so I was able to, to find that painting um, in Europe and, and call the museum and talk to the curator. And, and indeed it was a copy. It was not the original. I so love little this. wild things like that you chase down. Yeah, I love this idea. I mean, when I when I hear you describe that, and I, and I do this myself when I need to look things up and, and encourage students to do this too, because I, I consider, and I talk to my students, I consider a newspaper from that time period a primary source, right? It's, it's from that yes. time period. It's connected mm -hmm. to Kate, that particular article. But there's, you know, not all primary sources are created equal. And so that right. degree, those degrees of separation between the individual and, and the source itself, where a newspaper's further away from, uh, from that than, uh, than Kate's last will and testament, right? So we're going to be able to, to, as you said, debunk one and confirm or confirm in some cases, just depending on uh, how close we're able to get to 
records directly connected with Kate versus records that are referencing Kate but are slightly removed. I, I love that that degree of of research and detail in the work that that all of you do. It's incredible. Is it, it was fun too? Fun. Yeah, it it's really got to be was fun. fun. You know, and it ta- you learn a lot in the in the process. Um, you know, when you're chasing down all these pulling on these threads to see what what can come out. So I've got usually I would ask one qu- I would usually ask this question about if you found anything that was like really surprising that really that you felt like altered your understanding of Kate or the story. Is there anything there that you haven't already told us about? I think one of the things that was interesting to me about her was the the level of commitment and how serious she took it. Um, and that's evident in the lighthouse log because there are keepers that come after her that are super dramatic in their telling of what's happening. She is just about the facts. You know, this is where the wind was blowing. This is uh, how many people um, got into trouble in the water last night. This is how many died, how many were saved. Uh, you, you to me, just imagining yourself living that life alone, really, and having that level of dedication and focus and, and um, sort of a seriousness that she brought to it. The other thing that was really poignant for me about the story is I went to um, Bridgeport and to Black Rock. Black Rock, if you have, have you been to Black Rock? It's like really not. in between Bridgeport and Fairfield. And at one point it was part of Fairfield, Connecticut, and today it's part of Bridgeport. But it's like this historic neighborhood that looks out at the light. And so when I went there to do research about it, and again, this was in 2014, I went out there and I went to to visit her island and to to see for myself some of these things, which that was very helpful. Um, and, and But I learned that um, the survivors from Sandy Hook had adopted her lighthouse because Ben Wheeler, who died during that awful attack, um, he loved lighthouses. And so they adopted this lighthouse to kind of paint over any graffiti, pick up litter, because it was part of their healing. And, And they were working under this motto that helping is healing, that helping others can heal your wounds, even awful wounds. And one of the things that really struck me about that moment was that here, Kate Moore, who dedicated her life to saving people's lives, was in direct communication through the ages with these children who had been through such a horrific ordeal. And that connection, that fact alone kept me devoted to this manuscript and devoted um, to making sure it was published. That piece is mentioned in the back matter also, and it's just this touching moment that you share really about yourself because you're sharing about your trip to that lighthouse, but obviously about these kids and how they are moving forward and the decisions that they're making to do that and how that's then connected back to Kate's story. And I thought that it was this just beautiful, powerful 
piece that that I loved seeing uh, at at the end of this. Anna, it was oh. like otherworldly, and the the other thing about that that I did not mention in the back of it, but when those um, students and their grownups heard that I was researching Kate's life, they wanted to know what I'd found out. So they asked if I would come and show them these primary sources. So I did. Um, and it was a wonderful experience. Just, I felt like we were all together looking at this hero and, and what could be healing about knowing the details of her life. What the students did not know is at the time I was going through breast cancer. And I was in between two major surgeries and that opportunity to be with them, to be somehow a part of their healing journey, I, it still moves me to tears to think about it. It was such a gift for me. And so it, it's, this book is really a book of my heart, um, which you don't often hear nonfiction authors say because you're really, it's a form of reportage in a way. But this for me was really special. I can feel the emotional connection that you have with it. I, I feel like not only because of Kate, be, but because of the journey that you went along as you learned about Kate. And I think that that's beautiful. And, and amazingly, even with not knowing that if you just pick up this book and read it, you get an emotional journey with Kate and, and who she is. I mean, it's powerful. And I think that I have to imagine that some of that empowerment that maybe you were feeling at different moments comes across in your writing of Kate's story. I have to imagine that it does because I felt it when I read it. And, and as you are sharing all of this, I have to imagine that this is kind of where some of that comes from. It is a beautiful story. It's beautifully illustrated. Um, Anna, I want to thank you so much for coming on the Primary Source podcast and sharing with us all of this beautiful background, primary source and, and otherwise, around Courage Like Kate, the true story of a girl lighthouse keeper. Anna, thank you so much for joining me on the Primary Source podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a delightful conversation, and I loved every minute of it. I did, too. I did, too. Thank you. <laughs>